Hello, this is Jeremy Morlock, and for the next hour, I'll be reading from the Thursday, June 8th, 2023 edition of the New York Times on the Niagara Frontier Radio Reading Service. Northern Fires Spread Smoke and Anxiety by Dan Belisky, Liam Stack, and Vedrosa Isai. Canada on Wednesday was struggling to fight an extraordinary outbreak of wildfires across the country that sent smoke pouring over the border and forced millions of Canadians and Americans to stay indoors as skies darkened over large portions of both nations. Over 400 fires burned in Canada, and blazes this year have already scorched roughly 9.8 million acres of forest, more than 10 times the acreage that had burned by this time last year, officials say, sending smoke billowing down the east coast of the United States from New York past Washington, D.C., and as far west as Minnesota. In Canada, a country known for its picturesque landscapes and orderliness, the out-of-control wildfires have stoked national anxiety. They have also stretched firefighting resources in a sprawling and decentralized country where firefighting is managed at the provincial level, and made coordination more difficult at a time when global warming has intensified the wildfire season. In Ottawa, the capital, the feeling of a country under siege was highlighted on Wednesday by the sight of a thick haze hovering over Parliament Hill and over the soaring Gothic Revival Building that is part of Canada's Parliament in Ottawa. The effects from the Canadian wildfires stunned the United States. Smoke obscured the New York City skyline on Wednesday, turning the outlines of its skyscrapers into ghostly silhouettes. Climate research suggests that heat and drought associated with global warming are major reasons for the increase in bigger and stronger fires in Canada. Canada has the world's largest intact forest ecosystem, Drought and high heat, which many parts of the country have experienced recently, can make trees vulnerable to fire and dry out dead grass, pine needles, and any other material on the bottom of the forest floor that act as kindling when a fire sweeps through the forest. Wildfire experts see the signs of climate change in the dryness, intense heat, and longer fire season that have made these fires more extreme. Across a swath of North America, commuters slipped on COVID masks to walk the streets, schools canceled field trips and some closed. Flights were cancelled, and officials urged millions of people to stay indoors as smoke blotted out the sun. In Canada, the wildfires have exerted a heavy human toll, including displacing tens of thousands of people. The level of unpredictability caused by the blazes is so high that provincial wildfire authorities in British Columbia have warned local residents to have a go-bag at the ready, along with an evacuation plan. Millions of Canadians in Ottawa, Toronto, and Montreal woke up Wednesday to a haze of smoke over large sections of their cities, as wildfires expanded to places that had previously felt largely immune to the fires blazing in faraway provinces. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau said that hundreds of soldiers had been deployed across the country to help with firefighting efforts. Unfortunately, over the past years, we've seen extreme weather events increase in their intensity and their impact on Canadians, as well as on their cost to families, to provinces, and to the federal budget, Mr. Trudeau said. An apocalyptic haze in shades of beige thickened over northeastern U.S. cities throughout the day on Wednesday, drawing out anxieties about climate change from everyday New Yorkers and health warnings from Governor Kathy Hochul of New York and Mayor Eric Adams of New York City. In the cities most affected, including Buffalo and Binghamton in upstate New York, thick clouds of orange plunged the area into unusually cold temperatures as conditions worsened across the Northeast. Schools in New York City and Washington, D.C. canceled outdoor activities for the day, zoos in New York closed early out of concern for the animals, and Philadelphia warned residents to stay inside. The smoke and poor air quality also led to the cancellation of various cultural performances and sporting events, including a Yankees game in the Bronx and a Phillies game in Philadelphia. 
As smoke seeped into theaters in New York City, alarming both ticket holders and performers, the Broadway productions of Hamilton and a free Shakespeare in the Park production of Hamlet both canceled performances. People are scared to come out in the smoke, said Remy Hernandez, 40, a Bronx resident who delivers food orders for Uber Eats and DoorDash. To me, it looks like the world is ending. The hazy conditions in New York are likely to continue on Thursday and Friday and could linger over the weekend, according to Basil Segos, the commissioner of the New York State Department of Environmental Conservation. On Wednesdays, he told reporters that clearing the skies would take an act of God. We'll pray for rains up north and for winds to shift, he said. Much of New York State was under an air quality health advisory alert. By Wednesday afternoon, the air quality index in the broader New York City region surpassed 400, the worst since the Environmental Protection Agency began recording air quality measures in 1999. Such a reading indicates that the air is unhealthy for all people, not just the vulnerable, and is somewhat typical in smoggy megacities like Jakarta or New Delhi. But it is unusual for New York City, where decades of state and federal laws have helped reduce emissions and clear the air especially in middle and upper-class neighborhoods. The scope and scale of the wildfires in Canada have underscored the challenges of fighting fires in a vast country. Wildfire emergency response management is handled by each of the 10 provinces and three territories in Canada, but hundreds of blazes across the country have stretched local resources thin and renewed calls for a national firefighting service. It is rare to see this much wildfire nationally across Canada all at the same time, said Rob Schweitzer, executive director of BC Fire Services in British Columbia. In the past, provinces have been able to share resources, but now that is under strain given the amount of fire on the landscape. Richard Cannings, a member of parliament with the New Democratic Party, said wildfire activity had made it imperative to keep a national stockpile of equipment, such as a squadron of water bombers, that could quickly be deployed. Speaking with reporters on Wednesday, Mr. Trudeau did not address the call for a national firefighting service, but said that his government was considering creating a federal disaster response organization. We need to continue to make sure we are doing everything possible to both keep Canadians safe when these extreme weather events hit, but also to make sure we're doing everything we can to predict, protect, and act ahead of more of these events coming, he said. Firefighters from the United States, South Africa, France, Australia, and New Zealand, along with members of the Canadian Armed Forces, were supporting overwhelmed local fire crews. Over the past few weeks, wildfires in Canada have stretched nearly 2,900 miles from British Columbia on the west coast to Nova Scotia in the east, convulsing the country, causing fears about lost livelihoods, burning down properties, and endangering health. Health authorities have warned that fire smoke could cause symptoms ranging from sore and watery eyes to coughing, dizziness, chest pains, and heart palpitations. Some health officials have advised residents to wear protective masks, conjuring bad memories of pandemic times. Governor Kathy Hochul of New York said the state was releasing 1 million N95 masks from its stockpile to be given out at public places like parks and subway stations. Meteorologists said they expected the plume of smoke buffeting Toronto, the country's largest city and its financial capital, to worsen on Thursday because of winds, and Environment Canada warned residents to brace for worsening air quality. In Ottawa, the Ottawa Red Blacks, the city's Canadian football league team, switched from outdoor to indoor practice. And in Toronto, the Blue Jays announced that they would close their domed stadium for a game against the Houston Astros Wednesday night. The wildfires were also hurting businesses, with many mining companies suspending operations in Quebec. The wildfires have rattled British Columbia and Alberta, an oil and gas producing province, for weeks. Roughly 29,000 people were evacuated from Alberta, a number that had fallen on Wednesday 
to 3,900. On the east coast of Canada in Halifax, Nova Scotia, a wildfire late last month forced the evacuation of more than 16,000 people. In Ottawa on Wednesday, Bogdan Wozniak, 72, a distraught hot dog stand vendor, said his business had always been weather dependent, but smoke or fire were other level challenges. For smoke, you cannot be prepared, he said. You have the mask. That's all. I'll be lucky if I break even today, he added. Sunak-Biden meeting on AI is likely to revert to Ukraine by Mark Landler. Prime Minister Rishi Sunak of Britain began a two-day visit to Washington on Wednesday with a goal of aligning two allies on the challenges of artificial intelligence. But his meeting with President Biden will more likely be consumed by the here-and-now threat of Russia's war on Ukraine. Mr. Sunak, a self-described techie who has an MBA from Stanford University, will host a summit meeting in the fall on the regulatory issues raised by artificial intelligence, part of a plan to make Britain a leader in controlling this fast-developing technology. But because Britain left the European Union in 2020, it is not part of the dialogue between the United States and the European Union on how to deal with it. If the US and EU agree, the rest of the world follows, and Brexit Britain is in danger of being squeezed out, said Kim Darrock, a former British ambassador to the United States. As sensible as it is to confront the challenge of AI, he added, Britain has more promising avenues to pursue with Washington. For example, Britain's robust military support for the Ukrainian army has kept it a central player in the Western response to Russia's invasion. As it has in previous phases of the war, Britain's readiness to train Ukrainian pilots on combat jets was a catalyst for Mr. Biden's recent shift in favor of training Ukrainians on F-16 fighter jets and eventually supplying planes. Those decisions took on a new urgency after the calamitous breach this week of the Kakhovka Dam on the front line, which Ukrainian officials blamed on Russian troops who controlled the dam, planting explosives, and which Moscow blamed on Ukrainian saboteurs. If Russian forces were demonstrated to be behind the attack, Mr. Sunak told reporters on his flight to Washington, it would constitute the largest attack on civilian infrastructure in Ukraine since the start of the war and would just demonstrate the new lows that we would have seen from Russian aggression. Britain has stayed in lockstep with the United States since the start of the war, with Mr. Sunak showing the same vigorous support for President Zelensky of Ukraine as his former boss and predecessor, Boris Johnson. While at the White House, Mr. Sunak will also have a chance to lobby Mr. Biden to support Ben Wallace, Britain's defense minister, to replace Jen Stoltenberg as secretary general of NATO. Mr. Wallace routinely wins the highest approval ratings of any cabinet minister, but France prefers an EU candidate. For Mr. Sunak, who faces economic clouds at home, the optics of the visit are as important as any policy outcomes. He has fared better on the global stage than at home in recent weeks, parlaying Britain's support of Ukraine into a strong voice among the leaders of the group of seven countries. Now he is making his first trip to Washington as prime minister, with a chance to deepen his rapport with Mr. Biden. The two last met one-on-one for coffee in April in Belfast, Northern Ireland, during a brief visit by the president to commemorate the 25th anniversary of the Good Friday Agreement. Mr. Biden followed that with a leisurely tour of the Republic of Ireland, where he explored his ancestral roots. That drew tart commentary in London's right-leaning newspapers, which viewed it as evidence of his bias for Ireland over England, noting that he also skipped the coronation of King Charles III a few weeks later. British officials professed little concern about Mr. Biden's being a no-show. Dwight D. Eisenhower, they noted, did not attend Queen Elizabeth II's coronation in 1953. 
And in fact, the president is expected to make a state visit to Britain in July. Still, Mr. Biden has at times kept Britain at arm's length, particularly on issues like the post-Brexit trade status of Northern Ireland. He raised eyebrows in London last month when he told a Democratic fundraiser in New York City that he had gone to Belfast to, quote, make sure the Brits didn't screw around with Northern Ireland, after Mr. Sunak negotiated a deal with the European Union to resolve trade frictions in the territory. Mr. Biden had urged him to strike that deal in time for the anniversary of the Good Friday Agreement, which ended decades of sectarian violence in the North. So when Mr. Sunak did just that, diplomats on both sides expressed surprise that the White House did not give him more credit in its statement. Yet there are signs that Mr. Biden, 80, and Mr. Sunak, 43, are getting comfortable with each other, at least to the extent that the president is becoming more informal with him. When Mr. Sunak traveled to San Diego in March to inaugurate a submarine alliance among Britain, the United States, and Australia, Mr. Biden noted that Mr. Sunak was a Stanford graduate and owned a house up the coast. That's why I'm being very nice to you, Mr. Biden said. Maybe you can invite me to your home in California. For all the emphasis on Ukraine, British officials said Mr. Sunak would make transatlantic economic ties the centerpiece of his visit. He announced American companies had made 14 billion pounds, or $17.5 billion, of investments in Britain, including a new Mars center outside London. Mr. Sunak cast economic cooperation between Western nations as a bulwark against China, much as security cooperation has been against Russian aggression. Just as interoperability between our militaries has given us a battlefield advantage over our adversaries, he said in a statement, greater economic interoperability will give us a crucial edge in the decades ahead. But that message is complicated by the passage of the Biden administration's health, climate, and tax bill, which critics in Britain and elsewhere in Europe faulted for its subsidies to green manufacturers. It is also limited by Britain's departure from the European Union. Neither side is talking about a bilateral trade deal, which Brexiteers once promoted as a key dividend of leaving the bloc, but which does not interest Mr. Biden. Even on AI, Britain is constrained by its go-it-alone status. It is no longer a member of the Trade and Technology Council, where Washington and Brussels hash out AI-related policies. While in Washington, Mr. Sunak will forego the ultimate photo opportunity for a visiting VIP, throwing the ceremonial first pitch at a baseball game featuring the Washington Nationals and the Arizona Diamondbacks. British diplomats were keen for it to happen, noting that Mr. Sunak plays cricket, which would give him a feel for pitching. But Downing Street evidently saw more risks than rewards in putting the boss under the lights on a baseball diamond. You're listening to a reading of articles and features from the New York Times on the Niagara Frontier Radio Reading Service. Years later, prosecutors revisit police killings. Charges are rare. By Eliza Fawcett and Tim Arango. Augustin Gonzalez was shot dead in 2018 by police officers in Hayward, California, when he refused to drop a sharp object during a confrontation on a dark street. Andrew Maupin Buckskin was killed by Oakland officers in 2007 after he ran away following a car chase, hit under a vehicle, and failed to comply with their demands. Two years ago, Mario Gonzalez died after he was pinned on the ground for more than five minutes by officers in Alameda, California. In all three cases, prosecutors determined that the police should not be criminally charged, seemingly closing the book. But shortly after she became the district attorney of Alameda County in January, Pamela Price initiated a new review of those cases and five others in one of the most extensive re-examinations of police killings launched by progressive prosecutors. Ms. Price's review is notable because her predecessors had already cleared the officers of wrongdoing 
and two of the reopened cases occurred more than 15 years ago. As high-profile instances of police brutality shocked the public in recent years and raised questions about official law enforcement accounts, liberal prosecutors campaigned on the promise that they would review cases they felt were hastily closed without charges. Their efforts to revisit old cases have won praise from the activists and liberal Democrats who voted for them, but the re-examinations so far have rarely led to criminal charges. To reopen a police use of force case is, in many ways, a Herculean task, said Steve Descano, a Commonwealth's attorney in Fairfax County, Virginia. He lost in court after he charged two federal park police officers for the 2017 shooting of a man who fled a car crash, a case that the Justice Department previously reviewed and declined to pursue. The incidents almost never have evidence as stark as the bystander video showing George Floyd being pinned to the ground in 2020 for more than nine minutes by Derek Chauvin, a former Minneapolis police officer who was convicted of murdering Mr. Floyd. The circumstances often are more ambiguous, the footage less telling, and once a district attorney writes a lengthy memo detailing why criminal charges are unjustified against a police officer, it can be difficult for a successor to overcome those arguments absent new evidence. Everybody is going to go through it again, and the outcome in all probability is going to be the same, said Jim Pasco, the executive director of the National Fraternal Order of Police. And what's Einstein's definition of insanity? The biggest hurdle for pursuing criminal charges is the wide latitude that officers have to use force. State legislatures, including California's, have tried to narrow that ability. But officers generally can still use lethal force when they feel they or others could be killed, a level of immunity that law enforcement officials say is necessary to ensure the public safety. Alameda County, Ms. Price's jurisdiction, covers a large swath of the East Bay across from San Francisco, containing 14 cities and numerous police departments. In the county seat of Oakland, where the Black Panther Party emerged in the 1960s, a legacy of radical politics is intertwined with a troubled history of law enforcement. The Oakland Police Department has been under federal oversight for more than two decades. Ms. Price campaigned on a liberal platform that, besides reviewing old cases, included removing local residents from death row and resentencing inmates serving life sentences, an effort, she said, to restore public trust. Since taking office, she has directed her staff to seek the lowest possible prison sentences for most crimes. She said that in the past, prosecutors routinely gave officers a pass when they killed someone on the job and she wants questionable police killings to face the same rigor that other criminal cases get. Every case that we're looking at now was determined under a double standard, Ms. Price said in an interview. Police officers received a different standard of justice than everyday people. Ms. Price is among a growing cadre of progressive prosecutors elected over the last decade, beginning with the 2016 elections of Kim Fox in Chicago and Kimberly Gardner in St. Louis on promises of reducing jail populations and holding police accountable. The movement gained steam after Floyd's murder. Some prominent district attorneys have since faced a backlash over crime concerns. Chesa Bowden was recalled last year in San Francisco, while Ms. Gardner resigned last week as she faced criticism for her handling of violent crime. Ms. Fox is not running for re-election next year and has endured criticism from moderates and conservatives, especially for her support of eliminating cash bail statewide. In Maine, a police officer has never been prosecuted for an on-duty killing. But in July 2020, Natasha Irving, the district attorney for four counties, said she would seek charges for the 2007 police shooting death of Gregory Jackson, who was drunk and ran away after a routine traffic stop in Walderboro, the town where Ms. Irving grew up. 
Three years later, however, Ms. Irving said that based on the Attorney General's review of the forensics from the case, she will not file charges. It's just not going to be a provable case, she said in an interview. In the Virginia case pursued by Mr. Descano, Bijan Jirhasar, 25, was involved in a minor car crash and then fled in his Jeep, pursued by two officers who cornered Mr. Jirhasar in a residential neighborhood. When the vehicle moved toward a police car, they opened fire, killing him. Mr. Descano brought the case, but a judge dismissed the charges, ruling that the officers reasonably feared that they were in danger. His efforts to pursue the case further were rejected by the state's attorney general and the Justice Department. Such reviews offer the possibility of justice for still grieving families, but may also unrealistically raise their hopes. Carla Gonzalez, the mother of Mr. Gonzalez, the man who was killed in Hayward, said she was torn when she heard Ms. Price was reopening her son's case. Television outlets began replaying body camera footage of Mr. Gonzalez's confrontation with police. For his family, all of the anger, grief, and unresolved questions came rushing back. Why had the officers not tried to de-escalate the situation? I was excited to know that it was going to be opened up again, Ms. Gonzalez said. At the same time, I was very nervous that it was going to be another roadblock, another failure. Less than 2% of police killings result in charges, according to Philip N. Stinson, a professor of criminal justice at Bowling Green State University. That figure has not budged since 2020. The number of people killed by the police is holding steady. Last year it was 1,200, compared with 1,147 in 2022, according to Mapping Police Violence. From where I sit, nothing has changed, Mr. Stinson said. In Los Angeles County, George Gascon, who was elected district attorney in 2020, appointed a special prosecutor to reopen four cases in which his predecessor, Jackie Lacey, declined to file charges. He also asked an independent team of experts to review more than 300 previous use-of-force cases to see if the evidence warranted criminal charges. The special prosecutor, Lawrence Middleton, had secured convictions in a 1993 federal trial against Los Angeles Police Department officers for beating Rodney King. In the new cases, he has secured indictments against two officers in the 2018 shooting death of Christopher DeAndre Mitchell, who was driving a stolen vehicle and had an air rifle between his legs when he was confronted by officers in a grocery store parking lot. Both officers' use of deadly force was reasonable under circumstances, Ms. Lacey wrote in a 2019 memo. Three examinations themselves take time, and liberal prosecutors may yet file criminal charges against more officers in past cases, but they said that charges should not be the only benchmark of whether their reviews are worthwhile. I think there's a huge value to reopening a case if there is probable cause, or if there is evidence that seems compelling in any way, Ms. Irving, the prosecutor in Maine, said. Yes, part of it is to send a message to people who would be bad actors. Part of it is to send a message to families that have lost loved ones, or individuals who have been harmed, that they count. Ed Obayashi, a California-based expert in use of force who trains law enforcement, said in 2021 that Mario Gonzalez did not seem to be a threat to the public in Alameda, and questioned why officers restrained him before he died. The police had responded to a call that Mr. Gonzalez, 26, was acting strangely in a park and talking to himself. Mr. Abayashi said this week that he does not fault Ms. Price for reviewing the case, but he felt that if there was consensus in the Alameda County District Attorney's Office under her predecessor, Ms. Price should not have reopened it. It's a big concern to law enforcement because these types of decisions, to revisit old cases that former prosecutors have decided that no charges should be brought against the officer, it's political, Mr. Abayashi said. 
it's politically driven. Ms. Price's review also includes two cases from 15 years ago that occurred seven months apart and involved the same officer killing men who ran away after traffic stops, including Mr. Maupin Buckskin. The officer, Hector Jimenez, was cleared in each case and remains with the Oakland Police Department. For the life of me, I can't understand what Ms. Price thinks she's doing with those kinds of cases some 15 years after they occurred, said Michael Raines, a lawyer for Mr. Jimenez. In Hayward, the city agreed to pay $3.3 million to settle a federal lawsuit with Augustin Gonzalez's family, but said it was a way to support his children rather than an admission of wrongdoing. The city said in April that there appeared to be no new evidence that warranted reopening the case. Mr. Gonzalez was shot in November 2018 after police officers confronted him. He was suicidal and holding a razor blade. He refused to drop the blade and approached the officers with his arms outstretched. That's when the two veteran police officers shot him 12 times. Carla Gonzalez recently sat in her sister's kitchen and described her son as a father of two who was an Oakland sports fan and often drove nearly 400 miles south to Disneyland with his season pass. In the corner of her living room was a makeshift shrine with a flickering candle and a crucifix draped over his portrait. Cynthia Nunez, Mr. Gonzalez's cousin, said her family was grateful his case was being reopened, but they want more. Charges actually have to be brought forward, too, she said. The system needs to change. An Endangered Porpoise is Hanging On, Study Shows By Katrin Einhorn The world's most endangered marine mammal, a small porpoise called the vaquita, is hanging on to existence and appears to be benefiting from new conservation measures, according to the results of a new scientific survey of the species that was made public on Wednesday. An international team of scientists estimated that at least 10 vaquitas remain in the Gulf of California, the waters that separate Baja California from the Mexican mainland. The porpoises are found nowhere else and have been driven to the brink of extinction by drowning in gillnets, a type of fishing gear that drifts like a huge mesh curtain, catching fish by their gills. Dolphin sea turtles and vaquitas get stuck too, dying when they can't surface to breathe. Today we have good news, hopeful news. Maria Luisa Elbores Gonzalez, Mexico's Secretary of Environmental and Natural Resources, said at a news conference announcing the survey results. Researchers used visual identification and acoustic monitoring over 17 days in May to survey the population. Among the video footage captured of the elusive animals was a little dorsal fin surfacing alongside a larger one evidence of a calf swimming next to its mother. The estimated number of vaquitas in the new survey was similar to the previous one, conducted in 2021. Back then, researchers were aghast by what else they saw, more than 100 fishing boats in a highly protected zone known as the Zero Tolerance Area. At the time, the Mexican Navy acknowledged its lack of enforcement to the Times. Since then, the Navy has started working more closely with the Sea Shepherd Conservation Society, a nonprofit organization that patrols the region looking for gillnets. Last year, the Navy took a major new step, dropping a grid of 193 concrete blocks with protruding hooks designed to entangle gillnets in the zero-tolerance area. Gillnetting there appears to have dropped by more than 90%, the new report notes. It's the biggest conservation success for vaquita that I've seen in 30 years, said Barbara Taylor, a biologist and vaquita expert, who led the survey and who recently retired from the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration Fisheries. But more than that will be needed to save the species, she said. While no gillnetting was observed within the zero-tolerance area during the survey, it was regularly seen just northwest, where vaquitas were also spotted. Officially, the gear is banned in a wider zone beyond the zero-tolerance area. 
the report recommends expanding the use of concrete blocks. That's such easy, low-hanging fruit for the Mexican government, said Dr. Taylor. They know where to do it. They know where to go. They know it will make a difference right away, before the next fishing season. A harder step is transitioning local economies that rely on gillnets to new gear. One large and endangered fish in the region, the totoaba, has made the situation particularly volatile because its swim bladder commands high prices in Asia, attracting illegal trafficking and organized crime. But legal species are fished with gillnets too, including shrimp, corvina, and mackerel. One local effort to promote vaquita-safe equipment is run by a group called Pesca ABC. Its methods yield a higher quality catch, but so far there's only enough demand from seafood buyers to support about 30 fishers. Katie Carpio works with Pesca ABC and was one of the community members who participated in the survey, receiving training on how to identify the animals. Out with the researchers, she saw a vaquita for the first time. It was a lot of emotion, she said, a lot of happiness, adrenaline. The animals are so rare and hard to spot that many in the community don't believe they exist. They tell me, it was a dolphin, it was this, it was that, Ms. Carpio said, and I tell them, wait until they release the results, then you'll see the pictures. What's key for the future, she said, is finding solutions that work for both vaquitas and fishers. Mexico has come under increasing international pressure to enforce gillnet fishing bins throughout the protected vaquita habitat. The country faces current or possible trade sanctions under two U.S. laws, a global treaty on wildlife trade and the United States-Mexico-Canada agreement. Preserving the species by bringing some number into captivity isn't an option. An effort to do just that in 2017 was abandoned after one animal became so stressed by human contact that she died. A lot of very experienced people thought that the vaquita would be gone by now, said Kristen Noel, executive director at Cetacean Action Treasury, a nonprofit organization dedicated to saving the vaquita from extinction. The fact that it's doing better than expected gives Mexico one more chance to get this right. You're listening to a reading of articles and features from the New York Times on the Niagara Frontier Radio Reading Service. DeSantis Bets Provocation is a Winning Strategy by Shane Goldmacher Ron DeSantis' decision to send migrants from near the Mexico border to the capital city of California is, at first glance, the latest in a series of escalating clashes between the Florida governor and his Democratic counterpart, Gavin Newsom. But the performative gambit in the early days of Mr. DeSantis's 2024 presidential run is better understood as an opening bid to prove to Republican primary voters that he can be just as much a provocateur and every bit as incendiary as former President Donald J. Trump. For Mr. DeSantis, the flights illustrate the broader bet he has made that the animating energy in the Republican Party today has shifted from conservatism to confrontationalism and that in this new era, nothing is more fundamental than picking fights and making the right enemies, whether it's the migrants who have slogged sometimes thousands of miles to slip through the border, the news media, or the chief executive of the biggest blue state on the map. Mr. DeSantis has used this playbook before. He ordered up flights from the Texas border last year to the symbolically liberal hamlet of Martha's Vineyard, a stunt that drew exactly the outrage he saw. Those flights are now a staple of his stump speech, usually to cheers from the crowd. His allies in the Florida legislature earmarked $12 million of taxpayer money into the state budget this year for just this purpose. The easiest way to prove one's tribal loyalty in 2020's America is by theatrically hating the other tribe, said Russell Moore, the editor-in-chief of Christianity Today and the former president of the Southern Baptist Convention's Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission. In recent days, two charter flights orchestrated by the DeSantis administration carried roughly three dozen migrants from a New Mexico airport to Sacramento, 
The migrants, who are mostly Venezuelan, said they had been recruited from outside a shelter in El Paso, with promises of employment that California officials said amounted to deception. Mr. Newsom, the California governor, who is a potential future presidential contender himself, had suggested that the affair could merit kidnapping charges, calling Mr. DeSantis in a tweet a small, pathetic man. Mr. Moore said he believed that migrants and asylum seekers are created in the image of God and shouldn't be mistreated or treated as political theater for anybody. But he could also see the more crass calculations that Mr. DeSantis is making in a polarized era where politicians are more clearly defined not by what they're for, but who they're against. The one heresy that no tribe seems to allow is a refusal to hate the other tribe, Mr. Moore said. Mr. DeSantis, who flew to Arizona on Wednesday for a border event, is not a trailblazer in this regard. It was Mr. Trump who began his 2016 campaign by calling Mexicans rapists, who promised to, quote, build the wall, and later pitched a Muslim ban, making an America-first approach to immigration a central theme of the party. And it was Governor Greg Abbott of Texas who first began busing immigrants to blue cities and states last year, an idea that Mr. Trump floated as president in 2018, but never pursued. Mr. DeSantis later one-upped Mr. Abbott's buses with the dramatic flights to Martha's Vineyard, which are now the subject of a federal class action lawsuit. At the demographic and geographic epicenter of Mr. DeSantis' presidential candidacy is an effort to appeal to deeply conservative evangelical voters in Iowa, where the Republicans' 2024 nominating contest begins. Evangelical voters helped propel the Iowa victories of Ted Cruz, Rick Santorum, and Mike Huckabee in the last three open contests. Yet the DeSantis campaign and its allies see fighting the left as the fastest way to appeal to those voters, rather than overt displays of religiosity. Christians aren't looking for a savior to be president. They already have one, said one DeSantis advisor, who is not authorized to speak publicly to discuss strategy, explaining how Mr. Trump has dominated that voting bloc despite concerns about his moral character. Kevin Madden, who served as a top advisor on Mitt Romney's 2008 and 2012 presidential campaigns, said transporting migrants, however cynical, allowed Mr. DeSantis to agitate all the right people. He's provoking Gavin Newsom, Mr. Madden said. He's provoking the most extreme liberal voices to attack him. He's provoking media voices, and that works in his favor because it endears him to the forces on the right who want to see a clash of political civilizations. Outrage sells. Campaign contributions have repeatedly surged to the fury of merchants on the right. Whether the politicians selling the lie that the 2020 election was stolen, or the GOP hardliners who battled Representative Kevin McCarthy's ascent to the House speakership. An own-the-libs mentality has come to drive, if not define, the right online. On the left, Mr. Newsom has sought to elevate himself through his tussles with Mr. DeSantis, too. He ran a television advertisement in Florida attacking him last year. He challenged him to a debate. He traveled this spring to the new College of Florida, a public liberal arts institution where Mr. DeSantis is engineering a right-wing intellectual takeover. In his personal Twitter account, Mr. Newsom has slammed Mr. DeSantis by name at least 20 times. I think I'm being generous, small and pathetic, very generous, Mr. Newsom said on NBC's Today Show broadcast on Wednesday. He accused Mr. DeSantis of using migrants as pawns, adding, he's just weakness masquerading as strength. Mr. Newsom's new political action committee has been running a rotation of online fundraising ads that attack Mr. DeSantis. In my book, a bully and a coward doesn't deserve to be the leader of the free world, Mr. Newsom says of Mr. DeSantis in a video ad that began running on Facebook on Wednesday.
Mr. DeSantis's roundtable discussion in Arizona on border security was a government event underwritten by taxpayers, not his campaign. After days of mystery, Mr. DeSantis's administration took credit for the Sacramento flights on Tuesday. On Wednesday, he did not mention Mr. Newsom by name, though he said sanctuary jurisdictions had incentivized illegal immigration. Then Mr. DeSantis shifted to pick another fight with President Biden. I don't know how you can just sit there and let the country be overrun with millions and millions of people coming illegally, Mr. DeSantis said. Mr. DeSantis has become expert at agitating the rights boogeyman. He once called Dr. Anthony Fauci, the nation's leading infectious disease expert, a little elf who needed to be chucked across the Potomac. And when Mr. DeSantis' motives are questioned by reporters, his snapbacks have been quickly packaged and posted on social media in hopes of generating viral hits. If he were to become president, Mr. DeSantis has made plain that he would use the White House's powers to the fullest. He is fond of saying that although he first won the governorship in 2018 with barely 50% of the vote, that victory came with 100% of the executive authority. As governor, he has proudly used the power of the state to overrule local governments, ousting a prosecutor and prohibiting school districts from imposing mask mandates. Such actions are a departure from the limited government conservatism of yesteryear. His allies say it is a vivid signal to voters that Mr. DeSantis will leverage the powers of government to battle their enemies, at a moment when many Republicans feel that their values and nation are under siege. Cesar Conda, a former chief of staff to Senator Marco Rubio of Florida, who, two decades ago, served as the top domestic policy advisor to Vice President Dick Cheney, said that, quote, Ronald Reagan would be rolling over in his grave using taxpayer money to fly migrants from one faraway state to another. DeSantis's move is part of a growing strain in conservatism, endorsed by younger conservatives, to aggressively use the power and resources of government to achieve or coerce policy goals, Mr. Conta said. The less government, lower taxes, more freedom mantra of conservatism is becoming quaint and old-fashioned, unfortunately. Former Florida Deputy on Trial for Not Confronting Parkland Gunmen by Jane Musgrave and Matthew Rosenberg Seven months after the gunman in the Parkland, Florida school shooting was sentenced to life in prison for murdering 14 students and three staff members, prosecutors on Wednesday began trying to convince a jury that a former sheriff's deputy should also be held criminally responsible for not intervening to stop the massacre. The deputy, Scott Peterson, served as a school resource officer at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School at the time of the shootings in 2018. For not confronting the gunman, he is facing 10 charges, including seven counts of child neglect a rare prosecution of a law enforcement officer involved in the response to a mass shooting. In opening statements, the prosecution repeatedly noted that after arriving at the scene on the afternoon of February 14th, Mr. Peterson stayed in a stairway of an adjacent school building while the shootings took place in Building 1200. The defendant will never leave that alcove while the shooter is in that building, said Steve Klinger, an assistant state attorney in Broward County. In fact, he doesn't leave it for 30 or 40 minutes when everything is finished. The defense offered a blunt response. We are here because my client was sacrificed, said Mark I. Klarsch, Mr. Peterson's lawyer, arguing that Mr. Peterson was on trial only because more powerful law enforcement officials had sought to assuage the anger of grieving parents by scapegoating him. He was thrown under the bus. He is not a criminal. The sound of gunfire was echoing off buildings on the 45-acre school campus as the shootings took place over roughly six minutes, Mr. I. Klarsch said, and Mr. Peterson could not discern precisely where the shots were coming from. The defense, he added, had 22 witnesses who were similarly confused that day. 
there was a pronounced echo and reverberation that the witnesses will talk about that left them hearing the same shots and wondering, where is that coming from? Mr. Iglarsh said. Only one person was to blame, Mr. Iglarsh said, posting a photo of the convicted shooter, Nicholas Cruz, for the jury to see and calling him a sick, twisted monster. Mr. Peterson, dressed in a blue suit and red tie, listened closely and took notes throughout the opening statements. The courtroom was packed to capacity with spectators, including his wife and daughter. A conviction of a member of law enforcement for inaction during a mass shooting could have sweeping repercussions for policing in Florida and beyond, legal experts say. Mr. Peterson faces a decade-long prison sentence on the accusation that he failed in his role as a caregiver for the students. Mr. Peterson was the first officer on the scene, and by his own account, he did not rush into Building 1200 at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School, where the gunman killed 17 people and wounded 17 others. He instead took cover in the stairway of the adjacent building, in part because he said he feared that a sniper was firing from outside. Mr. Peterson also directed other officers away from where the gunman was firing an AR-15-style weapon on the campus in Parkland, an affluent community about 20 miles northwest of Fort Lauderdale. The trial, which is expected to last two months, is likely to expose issues that police departments across the United States have been grappling with since the Columbine school shooting in 1999, said Robert Jarvis, a law professor at Nova Southeastern University in South Florida. Before Columbine, officers were told to wait for SWAT teams to confront mass shooters. But since then, we've been expecting cops to run in, Mr. Jarvis said. It's a really interesting question as to what we expect cops to do. That expectation was underscored in May 2022 when police in Uvalde, Texas, waited more than an hour before entering a classroom at Robb Elementary School, where an 18-year-old man had fatally shot 19 students and two teachers. The gunman was ultimately killed by members of a U.S. Border Patrol tactical team, and subsequent investigations faulted Texas police for failing to act quickly. In the Parkland case, the charges against Mr. Peterson relate to the deaths and injuries on the third floor of the building, which prosecutors say he had a chance to stop. According to an investigation by the Florida Department of Law Enforcement, the gunman was making his way to the third floor 73 seconds after Mr. Peterson arrived in a golf cart at Building 1200. Mr. Peterson was armed with a service revolver and was not wearing body armor. After the morning's opening statements, the prosecution began calling witnesses, including a teacher and a student who used their cell phones to shoot brief videos of the mayhem that took hold as the attacks unfolded. In the videos, which were shown to jurors on Wednesday, gunshots can be heard over the steady buzz of the school's fire alarm as students scream with fear and moan in pain. Ivy Shamas, the teacher, who testified via Zoom from Washington, D.C., choked back tears as she described how two of her students died and four were injured when bullets shattered a window in her classroom. It was deafening, she said of the gunfire. Danielle Gilbert, who was a junior when the attack occurred, described waiting 20 minutes for the police to arrive after four of her classmates were shot, one fatally. It was the longest 20 minutes of my entire life, she said. Mr. Aglish argued that their testimony was irrelevant and unsuccessfully sought to keep the jury from seeing the videos. The booming sound of gunfire that was captured on the videos did not bear any resemblance to what Mr. Peterson heard, the lawyer told the judge, and he contended that the images were being shown merely to inflame the jury. They have zero relevance to how my client would have heard the sound, significantly farther away, he said. Mr. Peterson is charged with seven felony counts of child neglect in the deaths of four students and the wounding of three others, aged 14 to 17. He also faces three misdemeanor counts of culpable negligence, for the deaths of an 18-year-old student and a 35-year-old cross-country coach, and the wounding of a teacher. In news media interviews, 
Mr. Peterson has expressed deep remorse for the deaths. In the lead-up to the trial, Mr. Eiglarsh tried to persuade Judge Martin Fain of Burrard County Circuit Court to dismiss the child neglect charges, arguing that they were not justified under Florida law. To be convicted of child neglect, state law says, the person must be a caregiver to the child. Mr. Eiglarsh argued that the law does not include the police in the definition of caregiver. Noting that the Florida Supreme Court and other state appellate courts had found that a teacher, a babysitter, and even a kidnapper were caregivers under the law, Judge Fine rejected the defense request, saying, This determination will be made by the jury based on the evidence presented at trial. Mr. Jarvis, the law professor, said finding a school resource officer to be a caregiver to thousands of students would impose liability when no one thought it would apply. He added that prosecutors also face a daunting task in trying to convince the six jurors and four alternates that Mr. Peterson is guilty of culpable negligence. To do so, they must show Mr. Peterson knew or should have known that his actions, or inaction, put students and staff in danger. Mr. Peterson is also charged with a misdemeanor count of perjury, with prosecutors accusing him of lying to investigators and telling them that he heard only two or three shots coming from the building and that he did not see any students running from it when he was in the stairwell with his gun drawn. While other witnesses described the confusion that surrounded the shooting, many told investigators that it sounded to them as if the gunfire was coming from Building 1200. Mr. Peterson said he was unsure. I didn't even think it was even inside the building because it was so clear and loud, he said, according to a Florida Department of Law Enforcement report. At that point, I knew it was close to the building, but I wasn't even sure if it was in the building. Mr. Peterson, who would lose his $104,000 annual pension if convicted of a felony, retired after the shooting and was fired retroactively. He was released on bond and moved to North Carolina. You're listening to a reading of articles and features from the New York Times on the Niagara Frontier Radio Reading Service. New Strategy Works Well for Universal by Brooks Barnes In 2020, at the height of the pandemic, Universal Pictures and its art house sibling, Focus Features, set off alarm bells in Hollywood by ending the long-held practice of giving theaters an exclusive window of about 90 days to play new movies. Instead, their movies, which have since included Jurassic World Dominion, Belfast, Cocaine Bear, and Megan, would become available for digital rental or purchase at a higher price after as little as 17 days. For a change-phobic industry that still views the 1981 arrival of armrest cup holders as a major innovation, the introduction of the service, known as Premium Video on Demand, prompted extensive hand-wringing. Filmmakers and theater owners worried that ticket buyers would be more reluctant to leave their sofas if they could see the same films on their TV sets or iPads just a couple of weeks later. Universal's competitors mostly stuck with the status quo. But the willingness by Universal to experiment, to challenge the this-is-how-we've-always-done-it thinking, seems to have paid off. Universal has generated more than $1 billion in premium VOD revenue in less than three years, while showing little to no decrease in ticket sales. In some cases, box office sales even increased when films became available in homes, which Universal has decided is a side effect of premium VOD advertising and word of mouth. Universal, for instance, made Minions The Rise of Gru available for premium VOD after 33 days in theaters in 2022. The movie stayed in theaters after that, selling more tickets than Minions, released in 2015, did after 33 days, according to data from Comscore, an analytics company. Data for Universal's Jurassic World and Fast and Furious franchises show a similar effect. An interesting wrinkle. Donna Langley, the chairwoman of the Universal Filmed Entertainment Group, which includes Focus Features, 
said the company had seen only a small decrease in revenue from traditional VOD. That service lets viewers rent or purchase movies at a lower price after 90 days in theaters. She said the premium offering was an additive, important new revenue source that didn't exist three years ago. In other words, Universal thinks that, to some degree, it has found an entirely new customer. It has had a hugely positive impact on our business, Ms. Langley said, adding that without it, Universal would likely have had to make fewer movies. Universal and Focus will release 26 movies in theaters this year, more than any other Hollywood studio. Universal charges as much as $25 to rent a film for 48 hours, and $30 to buy it during its premium VOD sales period. Those prices can drop to $6 and $20 in the later traditional sales window. About 80% of premium VOD revenue goes to Universal, with sales platforms like Google Play and iTunes keeping most of the rest. A small cut goes to theater chains like AMC Entertainment, Greece to get them to agree to reduced exclusivity. Ticket sales are typically split 50-50 with theaters. Premium VOD revenue is small compared with box office sales, but it's certainly not nothing. The Super Mario Bros. movie has generated more than $75 million in premium VOD revenue since May 16th, Universal said. Jurassic World Dominion, The Crudes, A New Age, and Sing 2 each collected more than $50 million. Universal said 14 films, including News of the World, a period drama starring Tom Hanks, and Megan, each had more than $25 million. Films from Focus, including Belfast and Mrs. Harris Goes to Paris, have generated roughly $5 million each. For some art films, a theatrical release has become valuable mostly as a marketing tool for premium VOD rentals and purchases, according to Julia Alexander, the director of strategy at Parrot Analytics, a research firm. Much like DVD sales in the 1990s and 2000s, premium VOD has started to provide a type of financial safety net on box office misses. The focus titles in particular, said Peter Levinson, the Universal Filmed Entertainment Group's chief distribution officer, those smaller films aimed at older moviegoers have become, I wouldn't say reliant on it, but they have benefited hugely. It's also about flexibility, Mr. Levinson said. The studio often decides that 17 days, three weekends, of theatrical exclusivity is enough. Sometimes, based on ticket sales, it allows for longer. The Super Mario Brothers movie played it exclusively in theaters for 41 days. We have also taken back control of the decision of when to make our content available in the home based on the most optimal timing for an individual film, Mr. Levinson said. NBC Universal said in January that it, revenue from its studios, both film and TV, increased 23% in 2022 from a year earlier, to $11.6 billion. Every studio has been trying to find creative ways to maximize movie profits in a fast-changing business. Part of Universal's challenge is guessing what kind of impact premium VOD might have on streaming. If movies are sold or rented more widely before they arrive on a streaming service, in Universal's case on Peacock and Netflix, does that make the movies less valuable tools for encouraging people to sign up for streaming services? The impact on streaming is not quite as big as people might have expected, but it's still noticeable, Ms. Alexander said. An Ambitious Mystery in Bits and Pieces Review by Jesse Green In Oakland, California, in 1968, Huey P. Newton, the Black Panther leader, was convicted of killing a white police officer. In 1971, after two more trials and nearly two years in prison, he was cleared of all charges. So who pulled the trigger? That's the question at the heart of This Land Was Made, the gutsy but murky new play by Tori Sampson at the Vineyard Theater. 
part murder mystery and part counterfactual yarn, with generous helpings of sitcom and social drama thrown in. It doesn't hold together in the largely naturalistic framework provided by Taylor Reynolds' productions. But several elements remain compelling on their own, especially when they acknowledge and repurpose familiar forms. Most successful is the sitcom element, which could be titled Trish's, an Oakland bar where everybody knows your name. Miss Trish, played by Olivia V. Pugh, is a New Orleans transplant with a sharp if loving tongue, serving beer and soul food to regulars who come in for the schmooze as much as the fair. In one corner, her daughter Sassy, played by Antoinette Crow Legacy, trims the afros of old-timers and revolutionaries alike. For about 25 minutes, Samson serves up something warm and piquant at Trisha's, an interplay of zingers, flirtations, spats, and politics. Sassy is being romanced by Troy, played by Matthew Griffin. Her flashy friend Gail, played by Yasha Jackson, spars with the out-of-work Drew, played by Leland Fowler. Mr. Farr, played by Ezra Knight, an avuncular mechanic, smooths everything over with one affectionate eye on Trish and one on her fried chicken. Opinion on the Black Power movement is neatly divided among them. Troy, studying government in college and planning to be a judge, has no time for performative radicalism. Drew, who styles himself a king black man and is enamored of the Panthers, calls Troy a sellout. Mr. Farr doesn't like seeing youngins stomping around with big chests instead of working, but is sympathetic. And Trish, who lost a son in Vietnam, is fatalistic. They gotta give up power for you to get some, she says of white people. Newsflash. That ain't fine to happen. That Newton himself then walks into the bar seems like the setup for a joke. And indeed, at first, he is handled cheerfully. With his swaggering charisma, and despite the bandolier of bullets draped sash-like over his leather coat, he is, in Julian Elijah Martinez's electrifying performance, way more exciting than scary. Later, Martinez will fill in the more troubling aspects of this character, but at this point even Troy finds him impressive and approachable enough, despite their diverging politics, to accept his invitation to a rally. Whether this meet-cute of radicalism and conservatism is historically plausible, it is compelling as part of the playwright's mission. Samson, who grew up in a black power household, recently told my colleague Naveen Kumar that in writing This Land Was Made, she wanted to talk about the lowercase p panthers as people. When she intermittently achieves that sort of conversation, and in the process dramatizes the way some black Americans responded to the uppercase p panthers, the play hits a sweet spot at the intersection of fact and fiction. Then it swerves. The officer is killed and sassy in her secondary role as present-day narrator, sets out to reveal, as history is not, who done it. This Land Was Made offers three variations on the fatal confrontation. Unfortunately, the staging, with interstitial rewinds as seen in Hamilton, is so unclear you may have trouble following any of the outcomes, which all involve one of the regulars at Trisha's. A bigger problem is the meaning of the invention. Is it designed to counteract an unnuanced and possibly racist judgment on the movement as extremist and anti-American? The play's title, taken from the song This Land is Your Land, Woody Guthrie's bitter retort to God Bless America, suggests as much. But it's one thing to probe the past and extrapolate some answers. It's another to claim, as Sassy does, that the play depicts the exact events that the world has never known until today. Perhaps that magical yet iffy omniscience, Sassy calls herself a griot or traditional keeper of stories, would have felt less jarring in a more abstract production. Wilson Chin's set, though handsome, is compulsively detailed, right down to the B.B. King show cards. In 2019, the fable-like If Pretty Hurts, Samson's first professionally produced play, 
got an impressionistic staging at Playwrights Horizons that enhanced her rich language instead of fighting it. Another Samson play that year, Cadillac Crew, about women workers in the civil rights movement, did not, and it fell flat. More ambitious than either, this land was made does not yet seem certain of what it wants to be. Its sitcom setup clashes with the deadly seriousness that comes later, reducing the effectiveness of both. With a killing still unsolved at its center, it can't, as Sassy instructs, tell it like you know it. It can only hazard a few unsatisfying guesses. You've been listening to a reading of articles and features from the Thursday, June 8th edition of the New York Times. Your reader has been Jeremy Morlock. Thank you for listening.